pick a chronic or autoimmune disease later in life, and there's data on that, um, at least correlatively, to risk factors in early childhood microbiome development. Welcome back to the Mastering Your Fertility podcast. This show is all about reclaiming health, enhancing fertility, and preparing for pregnancy. We're Kristen Cornette and Dr. Haley Nye, your hosts and the creators of the online fertility platform, Tiny Feet. This episode is brought to you by our online preconception and fertility optimization course, Fertile in Five Masterclass. This course walks you through everything you need to know to prepare for a healthy pregnancy so you can get pregnant when you want to, stay pregnant, and bring your healthy baby home. With over six hours of video lessons, printable worksheets, and quick reference guides, and links to all of our top recommended products and resources, Fertile in Five really lays everything out for you in an easy-to-follow step-by-step program. If you're ready to stop stressing over getting pregnant and feel confident and empowered on your fertility journey, then this is the perfect solution for you. To learn more, click on the link in the podcast episode description or go to bit.ly forward slash fertile in five. And if you'd like to get a free sneak peek at the full course, check out our mini course on how to choose the best prenatal supplements, which actually walks you through step three of fertile in five masterclass. You can get signed up for the free course through the link in the podcast episode description or by going to bit.ly forward slash prenatal supplements. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening today. We appreciate you being here. If you're not familiar with us, we are a functional nutritionist and naturopathic doctor, and our passion is helping couples get pregnant naturally and have healthier babies. We have a virtual practice through Tiny Feet where you can schedule one-on-one consults to investigate your health and get your fertility on track. And we also offer online courses for those looking for a more do-it-yourself approach. You can learn more about us and what we offer on our website at tinyfeet.co. And if you happen to be local to the Portland, Oregon area, you can also find Dr. Haley at Synergy Women's Healthcare. To learn more about working with her in person, visit synergypdx.com. Now, if you happen to be enjoying the podcast, we would love to hear your thoughts through a review on iTunes. Reviews are really the best way to help us share the podcast with more women and couples who need this information, and it also totally makes our day to hear from you. We really appreciate all of the support we've received from our listeners over the past year, and we're excited to continue bringing you new content. All right, you're listening to episode 51, where we interview naturopathic doctor and microbiome researcher, Dr. Andrea Macbeth, about how important the gut microbiome is to your future baby's development, immune system programming, and long-term health. Now, we continue to explore gut health in depth on the podcast because this is really such a critically important area to focus on during preconception. And that's not only for your own health and fertility, but also for your baby's health as well. There's just so much parents can do to optimize the development of baby's microbiome before pregnancy, during pregnancy, and throughout childhood. And that's really what we're going to cover today. So in this episode, Dr. Macbeth is going to help you understand how the gut microbiome influences baby's health throughout life, starting even before conception with mom's gut health, the many different health conditions that are linked to microbiome imbalances in children, specific keystone species of bacteria that babies need in their guts to grow up healthy and where to find those species, major factors that disrupt the microbial ecosystem in our bodies and why this has such massive implications for human health, especially for future generations, 
what we can do to protect our microbiome and also encourage healthy microbial growth in our babies. And lastly, the amazing future possibilities of fecal microbiota transplant or FMT for treating a variety of microbiome linked health conditions. All right, so let's introduce you to our guest today and get started on the interview. Andrea Macbeth is a naturopathic doctor and scientist with a passion for shifting perspectives toward microbiome-centered health. Her background includes a degree in biochemistry and research pursuits in various areas of molecular and cellular biology. After years working in cancer research, she left academia and the hospital to be a full-time patient advocate for a family member with cancer. That experience and her own journey of chronic pain and autoimmune disease led her to pursue healthcare and advocacy using the tools of naturopathic medicine. As a licensed MD in Oregon and Washington, her clinical care focus is functional gastrointestinal and autoimmune issues. In conjunction with the functional medicine practice, she runs Flora Medicine Stool Bank, which provides fecal microbiota transplant for the treatment of resistant Clostridium difficile infection. And she also heads their investigational science applications for other microbiome therapies. We're so excited to have Dr. Macbeth with us today, and we hope you enjoy the interview. All right. Welcome, Andrea Macbeth, to the Mastering Your Fertility podcast. We're so excited to have this conversation with you today about the microbiome. I'm so excited to be here. Yay. All right. So give us a little bit of background. Let's start there. How did you get into naturopathic medicine and how did you become obsessive about the microbiome? <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I've been a lab geek scientist most of my life, starting in high school, actually. I was a biochemist undergrad and did a lot of academic research and always had intended to become a PhD researcher. And um, not very long into my PhD in biomedical engineering after doing a couple years of molecular biology full-time, um, my sister uh, was diagnosed with cancer. And so I stopped my PhD. We went on a journey together. She's now in remission. Um, but that process left me very much um, looking for answers about nutrition and prevention um, and thinking about my loved ones and what I could do to find a path that um, didn't put me in a position where I didn't have to do that again <laughs> with anybody I cared for. And I found naturopathic medicine mostly for nutrition because I really fundamentally believed that nutrition was at the heart of prevention and chronic disease and um, that that was where we could be empowered to take back our health. So I became a naturopath not knowing what it was really and um, loved every second of it and came full circle back to my molecular biology interest when I found out about fecal transplant and the data that's available about the microbiome and its role in nutrition and health was the bridge that provided um, connection of my two worlds. So like naturopathic medicine was beautiful and I sort of left academic science behind and I loved all the modalities, but then all of a sudden the microbiome was this unifying mechanism of why all the cool tools we have work and really dove back into that and uh, was fascinated with fecal transplant as sort of a, a broader model, an example of really the power of the human microbiome and our 
lifestyle choices on an organ system that dramatically impacts our body. So it's a long story, but um, now I find that I can do preventative lifestyle medicine and functional autoimmune and GI work through the lens of the microbiome. And it provides um, this really cool platform and paradigm to help people and also all kinds of cool science that we're learning very, very quickly that I think is translatable in a practical way with the toolbox we have. Yeah, absolutely. I know with naturopathic medicine, you know, it stems back in the early 1900s and they've always been, um, interested in the gut and supporting the, the gut, but we didn't really know about the microbiome, obviously back then it's relatively new research. And so it's really cool to have naturopathic medicine now being kind of supported with all this brand new research that's coming out and discovering the, um, this whole organism, like you were talking about that is inside of our gut and, and really supporting our, our whole health. Like we, we couldn't live without it, obviously. So we're going to get into that. And you've also mentioned fecal transplant a couple of times, which I'm sure people's ears are perking up like, what, what is that? So, um, we're going to ask a few questions about that, but this is all about, um, preconception care and fertility, and of course the health of our newborns. And so, um, we want to get into that a little bit. So, we have research now showing that from conception to a thousand days of life is a critical period for development that plays a huge role in determining our long-term health all the way into adulthood. So Kristen and I have mentioned this on the podcast several times, and we just want to get your take on how the gut microbiota is involved in laying that foundation for health for adulthood and in our, in our children. Yeah, this is really exciting. Um, and I'll preface it with, we are like at the very beginning of this exploration phase. And so we know the tip of the iceberg about what's going on, but what we do know is really exciting. And it's, um, we know the bacteria are really important for educating our immune system. And what that means is they are making um, molecules that are communicating with our cells and specifically communicating with our immune cells. And our immune development early in life sort of sets the stage for tolerance to things. And so if you think of autoimmune disease or atopic or allergic disease, it's our body um, misreading signals of things that shouldn't be a problem, but our body mis mistakes them as a problem. And it turns out the microbiome has a really important role in that education process. And we don't know all the details, but we know that a healthy, stable microbiome at, in those, that development window, those first thousand days, um, and preconception even through gestation in the first thousand days, is, is the foundational part of educating both parts of our immune system, innate and adaptive, um, in different ways. And we're there's some hints that we might, uh, the bacteria might play a role in our stem cell um, maturation that become immune cells and all kinds of things like that. And so, you know, what you're going to be allergic to later in life, whether it's a peanut or gluten or, you know, have asthma, has a link to what the bacteria are doing early on in life. And it's important that they're doing the things that we sort of evolved 
um, to have them do. So they are educating us about some things that are going to be bad and telling us, calm down, those things are okay. And that's where we're starting to look and really address chronic disease in early childhood development and pay more attention. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a, I mean, this is such an important area because we are just seeing chronic disease absolutely explode in children. And that has really scary implications for our future. I think as a, as a society, you know, our, our economic potential, um, our potential to handle the challenges that are going to be coming our way from other challenges like, oh, I don't know, climate change and all these other things. So I mean, just really big picture. This is, this is a big deal. Yeah. I think it's at the root of what we have to start addressing. And I, I don't know, on a global level, you know, we have climate change, but we're seeing mass extinction on the macro, the microscopic level of our gut microbiome. And our microbiome is just important of an ecosystem as the Amazon rainforest in terms of the health and survivable survivability of our species, I believe in a really fundamental way. And so bringing attention and awareness to the fact that this ecosystem or organ system or endocrine organ or whatever you want to call the microbiome, especially early in life, as we lose keystone species, just like we have mass extinction of insects on a global scale, we are setting us up for, you know, disease and problems. That was really interesting when I heard you speak and why we wanted you on the podcast is you comparing um, our microbiota to like the Amazon rainforest. It was just something that I've never heard before of like, wow, there's this advocacy for the species in our gut that, that we're actually losing those over time and that it is something that really we can't get back. And so um, it was really fascinating to me and I'm excited for you to talk more on that specific thing. Also, when you were talking about, um, you know, children's microbiome programming or the immune system, I was thinking of my own, my own daughter, Aspen, and how she really wasn't set up for optimal gut health, unfortunately, because I've had such poor gut health and I kind of, you know, I got pregnant with her without, um, I mean, I did do the elemental diet and all that. And I'm, I was trying to support my gut, but I still feel like it wasn't optimal. And then she was born C-section. And so, um, I think that I just want our listeners to know that there are things that you can do after they're already born. And so with her, like the prevention that I helped her with is giving her, which I believe we're going to speak on this, but this, um, B infantis, uh, uh, bacteroides infantis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Infantis. So I did that right from the first day that she was born because I wasn't able to do the vaginal seeding or do anything, you know, a C-section. And so, um, and I think that really helped her along the way, but I guess my point is, is that I feel like she was always kind of vulnerable to tipping over the edge of, of her microbiome. So if I gave her like antibiotics or if I gave her anything that would have kind of like tipped her over the edge, um, that she would have developed more of these like chronic allergic type of symptoms. And so you can support your baby's immune system in those first thousand days. Um, even if not all goes well (laughs) in, in conception and throughout pregnancy and through the birthing process, which I know that we're going to touch on too. So, um, so another thing that we wanted to ask you was, um, 
is I know that you already kind of touched on this, but health conditions um, in children that are affected by the microbiota. So maybe you can be a little bit more specific on that of like connecting the dots of like what kind of symptoms children might be experiencing that is connected to the gut and then also in adults as well. Yeah. So um, there are a lot of a, what we call atopic or allergic diseases that have data. Um, the cool thing is that um, in places like Norway, they did these massive cohort studies where they followed kids from um, birth through 12 years of age and collected all this data on like all kinds of risk factors. And so as you would probably imagine, it's correlative and not causative, but we have lots of evidence to show that this early childhood gut microbiome um, education impacts things like asthma and psoriasis, obesity, metabolic disease, you know, pick, pick a chronic or autoimmune disease later in life. And there's, there's data on that, um, at least correlatively to risk factors in early childhood microbiome development. Um, and neurodevelopment too. I mean, we have some good data on that as mm -hmm. well. Yeah. And some of the most interesting is in autism, depression, anxiety. Um, and we can talk about some of that too, but the gut is communicating with the brain. And just like we're educating the immune system, we're educating the brain too, as it early brain development is happening. So again, it's another, you have to really think of the microbiome as another organ mm -hmm. and specifically an endocrine organ that is sending chemicals out to every other organ in the body. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. So we have our endocrine glands, like the thyroid, we've talked a lot about the adrenal glands we've talked a lot about, which are just communicating with our body. But this new concept that you're talking about is thinking of a microbiome as another type of like endocrine communicating organ. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. That's, so That's super fascinating. <laughs> so let's, let's dive into some of these key species. So, you know, in, in early childhood development, there are um, certain species of gut bacteria that populate the gut and young children are, are super important to normal development of their bodies, of the immune system. So talk about what some of those are. Okay. So the one I think that is most interesting and is a, a model is Bacteroides infantis. Um, is that the one you guys kind of want to get into? Yeah. Go for okay, it. Yeah. We already mentioned it. So let's get into so, it. Great. So like I said, we're, we're thinking of this as a rainforest or an ecosystem. And just like ecology principles apply to a forest, they apply to the microbiome. And there's concept of a keystone species that I think is worth just going over. So keystone species is something like a shark or a wolf or another, a beaver, where their impact on the ecosystem far outweighs their actual mass. So they dramatically shift the ecosystem's health because they play some keystone role. So in the case of wolves and Yellowstone, they change the way the rivers flow because they impact the grazing animals and then therefore impact the salmon habitat. Or in the case of beavers that make dams, they change the way the rivers flow through their habitat. Um, or sharks in like a coral reef system, they change the way other fish inter 
um, interact with the coral. So we have those keystone species in our gut too. It's just like at that same concept. And one of the ones that we have a lot of data on, like you mentioned, and is becoming sort of a model of how important this early childhood development window is, is this um, specific species called Bacteroides infantis. And it metabolizes and um, takes the breast milk that from the moms and the specifically the oligo sugars and crunches them up and makes them food for the baby. So it's a really important keystone species in that it does that. And the other thing it does to the ecosystem is it changes the pH. And that is important because the early uh, childhood pH microbiome impacts susceptibility and colonization of all the other bacteria. And so I was at a conference a couple weeks ago and saw um, a really great lecture by David Kyle, who um, put together this Bacteroides infantis probiotic um, that I think they're using as a medical food, but they've done a lot of great data work on looking at this species and showing that um, babies that don't have it have a different pH than babies that do have it. And it comes from mom's fecal material. So it turns out the vat vaginal microbiome isn't the only thing that matters. If you think about a baby coming out in anatomical way, its head comes out with its mouth right at the rectum of mom. And so you're getting an inoculation of mom's microbiome too, not just the vaginal flora. And fascinatingly, they showed that in like the 1920s, baby's pH of their microbiome was around five. And this is like right up right after birth. And they were pooping two to three times a day and that was normal. Whereas now in America, an average baby's pH of their microbiome is around 6.1 and they're having five to eight watery stools a day. And so that's a very big pH change and represents a very significant shift in the ecosystem. So um, they did some comparison <clears throat> with vaginal seeding, which you guys have talked about and we talked about a little bit. And it turns out that vaginal seeding does help a little bit because it introduces lactobacillus crispatus, which is another species that lowers the pH, but it still doesn't do all the things that Bacteroides infantis does. And it totally makes sense that the baby needs to inherit the mom's gut flora from stool and some of the skin protection and vaginal flora from the vagina. Um, so it kind of blew my mind and we can talk more about that and you guys can answer questions, but that Bacteroides infantis, when it's lost, changes the ecosystem and sets the baby up for increased inflammation. Um, there's not other food for the other bacteria. So it eats the mucus layer and sets these babies up for inflammatory disease and sort of heightened immune response that educates the immune system to be on hyper alert for the rest of their life. Well, that sounds really familiar personally. <laughs> yeah. But I, I mean, it, it's really interesting to learn kind of all of the, the mechanisms behind what's really happening with some of these childhood illnesses that everybody just kind of thinks are normal. Right. And normalizing is, is dangerous, I think, because just because every American does X, Y, Z, that doesn't mean that's what we is an optimal health state. Right. Um, but I think I wanted to know back to your point, Haley, the cool thing about understanding these mechanisms is, is the more we know, 
the more information is power, we can, we can make changes and fix things so that if you have a C-section or you have a bunch of antibiotics at birth, you're not, it's not like a black box and you're, you know, okay, right. well now you're just set up for that. The more we know about the microbiome and the more we find keystone species like this, the infantis, the more we're giving people power to kind of rebuild and reconstitute. And you think about early childhood exposure to things, there's always a cost benefit. We just haven't been measuring the cost of antibiotics. Right. There's right. Sometimes it's appropriate, but now that we know the cost, we can make that decision, um, you know, more informed, I think. Or just, you know, really focus on the prevention piece. And I think that's, what's great about where our listeners are at. Most of them on their journey are at the point of like starting to try to conceive, or maybe they've been struggling for a little while. And, you know, there's a lot that you can do to intervene with things like nutrition and lifestyle to actually lower your risk of needing to have a C-section birth, for instance, or receive antibiotics during labor. And so, you know, this is a great time to be able to intervene as well um, for protection of that future microbiome of your baby. Well, it turns out we want mom to have B. infantis in her So that's what I was going to ask. Like, Mm -hmm. I I feel like as I'm like putting myself in the listener's shoes, like as, and as obviously somebody who wants to conceive a a second child, I'm like, well, how do I know I have B. infantis? And like, how do I get that? And like, how, so it's in most of the prenatal probiotics. Well, there you go. Yeah. It's already there. I mean, it's, we know this, but is it an, what do you think? Like, is it enough? Is it actually, cause we've heard that like, you know, taking probiotics is more of just like a transient, like saying hi and then leaving the, the body. Um, is it actually, what, what else could we do to support the gut and the, the infantis in our guts besides just taking like the probiotic? <sighs> That's a hard question. We don't know, but it doesn't hurt to take them and it doesn't take to hurt to take them all the way through pregnancy and through birth. Mm-hmm. And we know that we do transfer some probiotics somehow. We're not sure how from mom to baby, partially maybe the oral cavity, like you guys mentioned. Um, maybe there's a mechanism where some of the bacteria in our gut are actually translocated into breast milk. We don't know. There's some early research looking at that. Um, in theory, we don't actually know that that happens, but it's a theory about, you know, our body has many evolutionary mechanisms to get the good bugs into the babies because it's so important. Um, and so I think gut health in general should just be a foundational part of preconception and fertility, which you guys I'm sure appreciate, you know, just like having your thyroid under control and your, you know, vita- your, uh, your ferritin high enough. Yeah. You know, all those basic things, having a good, healthy microbiome should be at the foundation of fertility and preconception care. And that is one of the reasons why part of our preconception care protocol includes a probiotic. And I feel like a lot of women just don't understand that as much. They're like, well, if I don't have any gut symptoms, why would I need to take a probiotic? Well, this is part of the reason because those probiotics have B. infantis in it and, or infantis <laughs> yeah. correctly and, um, and other, you know, important species to be able to support the gut microbiome during the conception pregnancy, and then also the importance of like breastfeeding. And so there was some unpublished data that was presented at this lecture I went to, and they looked at 300 babies, zero to six months old, 
I think I took, I took short notes, so this might not be exactly, but the general gist of it was they studied a bunch of babies in the US, zero to six months old, and they found that 97% of them had no the Infantis. So it's more or less extinct from wow. our ecosystem. That doesn't wow. mean we can't reintroduce yeah. it. But I don't love probiotics as a baseline. I think there's not good data on all of it. One of the places I do think it makes total sense is in preconception care, yeah. along with prebiotics and fiber and a healthy diet and stress management, which all impact the gut microbiome. But um, you know, I have trouble recommending probiotics because they're so um, poorly regulated and the data is unclear and it's all marketing. But in the case of this particular strain, we know enough that it's important and quite frankly, it, do, it just makes sense to do. So yeah. what do you think about like the, because I got the recommendation from my pediatrician, Dr. Paul Thomas, who is pretty well known. Um, he wrote a book recently, but um, he said to give the B Infantis um, right at, at birth. And so I got it from Avivo, which is, you yeah, know, that's the guy who I saw talk. That was his. Oh, brand. there you go. Well, yeah. Mm -hmm. So all it has is be infantis in it. That's, right. that's it. And it's formulated in a way that you can just give it to infants right at birth. Right. Um, which, which is so I, cool. Yeah, exactly. Like I don't regret that decision at all. I mean, it's, it's kind of a pretty penny to spend that, uh, you know, on that particular probiotic, but I feel like my baby had enough risk factors that I just mentioned earlier in the episode that it was absolutely necessary. But now that I'm hearing you, what like your percentage of people who are missing that particular uh, keynote or keystone species in our gut, like, would you say that most babies should probably have this particular, like just for prevention or just like, we know most babies need this as a keystone species. Yeah. I don't work with mom babies. Yeah. So I'm hesitant yeah. to make that universal recommendation, but I was, and I, and this data was presented by the person who makes that product. So there was an inherent bias, mm -hmm. but there is a pretty good body of evidence showing the infantis is really important in this early phase of colonization and reducing inflammation. So, um, you know, there always needs to be more and conventional medicine wants to see large double blinded placebo controlled studies and safety data and all that stuff. Yeah. But by and large, we have good safety data on probiotics. We know moms giving the baby all these nutrients from the breast milk mm -hmm. in theory. Um, and again, it's a cost benefit ratio. It makes sense to me that the mitigation of potential inflammatory, especially knowing the species is like largely lost from our Western civilization, it makes total sense to introduce it either through mom's oral or through direct probiotic delivery to the baby or both, um, you know, in that window. Yeah. Didn't he mention something about how in Africa they have a lot more B infantis or did they, did he say anything about difference in cultures? Yeah. Yeah. And we see that across the board. So I think somebody who's worth looking into is um, Martin Blazer and Maria Dominguez Belo. So they are researchers that are uh, 
scanning the globe for traditional tribal communities who eat a hundred grams of fiber a day and have log more diversity in their microbiome than we do. And they are trying to like save in a seed bank, essentially the bacterial diversity of the planet before it goes extinct forever. Wow. But there is dramatically different profiles of diversity and different societies. And you think about the hygiene hypothesis, right? So we have now had three generations of Western culture of antibiotics, um, sterility, antiseptic, and, you know, one generation, one and a half, two, with antimicrobials, which play a huge role in knocking out not just the bad species, but the good species. So we have been doing mass extinction of the microbiome ecosystem on a scale that's very impressive, quite frankly, for, you know, considering how many hundreds of thousands of years we evolved these bacteria. Um, so looking at other traditional groups that have more diversity um, makes total sense to sort start to understand. So there's another version of this that happened, a keystone species that we found on the skin. And there's a topical product you can buy called Mother Dirt, and I'm not associated with them, but I just like their work they've done. And it's uh, oxidizing bacteria that we essentially went extinct from our skin because of... Um, soap and the pH of our skin. And so we, these are examples. We know there's many, many, many more we don't know yet. And the short answer is we have to just start to think about it globally as how do we support the ecosystem and the process of keeping these alive. But we do have and reintroducing the ones we've lost that are really important. Yeah. You know, it's kind of amazing how our like you said, I mean, these, these few generations of um, extreme hygiene and, and what we've lost from that. And so what we were obviously trying to do with all of that hygiene is eliminate or significantly reduce acute infectious illness. Which and we did. We, Great. We just traded it for chronic illness. And, you know, that's, you see a lot of, of um, fear around all types of infectious illness and this sort of obsession with you know, cleanliness and, and even vaccination to some degree, because we're trying to get rid of this infectious illness, but we're not considering what we're losing when we do that. And there's a huge role for infectious disease because that was the number one killer and it, we did a great right. job. And I think there's, it's not that we need to get rid of our infectious disease control. We just need to have a bigger picture of what's going mm -hmm. on and not you know, to use a terrible euphemism, throw the baby out with the bathwater of, you know, right. All the good bacteria. So there's like 58 pathogenic bacteria and trillions of other kinds of bacteria on the planet. And in our gut alone, there's, you know, we don't know exactly how many species, but thousands of species of commensal bacteria that we know are important. And so you do need to mitigate infectious disease risk, but we need to appreciate what the cost is while doing that because, you know, infectious disease is going to kill you a lot faster than a chronic disease. And so that's the trade-off, but, um, understanding the ecosystem model, I think will be really helpful. You know, there's simple things to do, like feed the good 
bacteria when you can with prebiotic fiber. I'm a really big fan of the prebiotic movement because... Can you actually talk more about that? Because you mentioned prebiotics earlier, and I wanted to ask you about that because there's a lot of good information that's coming out about prebiotics. So maybe just tell the listeners, like, what the heck is prebiotic? It's branded fiber. Yeah. (laughs) Essentially. But also in... Okay. So my favorite thing to start with is it turns out there's no such thing as soluble or insoluble fiber. That was like a term that was made before we knew what it was, right? Every person's microbiome is different and every person's digestive system is different. And the fiber Mm. that gets to their colon is going to be different for every person based on those things. And so what is insoluble or soluble for me may not be insoluble or soluble for you. Mm. Um, very interesting. So we defined it before we knew the mechanism. And so if we define things that are insoluble is the fiber that makes it to our bacteria that varies all the time, depending on what we're eating and how we're eating and what the digestive process looks like. And so we know bacteria are responsible for a big part of the metabolism of our food and they need food to eat. And so what we feed them is important because if they don't get fed by prebiotics is what we call the bacteria food or fiber or insoluble fiber, whatever you want to call it. They eat our mucus lining or, you know, they Mm. die because they're not getting the food they need and the good species that are supposed to be making anti-inflammatory metabolites from the food they're eating from us, you know, go away. Short chain fatty acids like butyrate is a good example. So prebiotics is just a branded, uh, concentrated version of fiber that's digestible. And the caveat here is you can't go out and take a big scoop of inulin, which is a fiber, because your gut would explode. You'd be so bloated and miserable. You wouldn't <laughs> oh, be able I've to experienced function. that before. <laughs> so we, we have to think about like, as Americans, we or standard Americans or whatever, you know, we are not eating a hundred grams of fiber a day. So we do not have the ecosystem to process a hundred grams of fiber. How much do you think we eat on average? Like what would you say? People less than 10. One idea. I was going to say like okay. 25 is usually a target for people. To yeah. Less, try so less to than get 10. Yeah. We, we try to get people to eat like 30, but I, I would say even myself, like I, I, I probably don't get I think, 30. I think the average American eats around six grams of fiber a day. Um, oh. But we're shooting for, yeah, 30 to 60. But that's a lot. And you have to wean because you have to have the ecosystem. It has to grow to accommodate that. And so there are prebiotic fibers that aren't so hard. So there's there's other kinds of prebiotics that come from Berries, for example. So polyphenols can be considered a prebiotic or um, potato starch or, um, you know, FOS oligos that maybe are a little bit more digestible for our sort of delicate ecosystems that help you like reintroduce fiber gently. The other thing about prebiotics is they're formulating them with things like ginger or um, fennel that help you with the gas that comes from introducing fiber. Mm. So we have this really tricky situation in, a, in, in our culture where we have people who have lost the keystone species that digest the fiber. So when they eat the fiber, they're miserable. Like beans, why- right? People are like, I don't eat beans. And they do this paleo movement because they think beans are awful. But 
I, it turns I, out, yeah, there's probably some value with in beans if you can digest them. If you can and, digest them, right. Right, yeah. And so the trick is how do we do that? Um, short of a fecal transplant, I don't have a good idea. I don't have a good answer. <laughs> but yeah. we do need to be careful about not getting rid of all the fiber, but also introducing it slowly. And that's why I like the prebiotic powders that are coming on the market because they're being designed intentionally to address this in a way that people can introduce them slowly and, and digest. And they really, I think, are a better use of money in supplement than probiotics. a lot of probiotics, yeah. quite frankly, yeah. unless you're in a specific circumstance like the B. infantis or something like that. Yeah. So, I mean, it really, it really brings up this issue of, um, excessive dietary restriction, which a lot of people fall into that trap when they have symptoms. And so they say, well, I'm going to go on a low FODMAP diet, which isn't necessarily a bad strategy in the short term to reduce symptoms. Will you address whatever it is that's going on? But people who eat a low FODMAP diet over, you know, a year. Well, or tell the listeners because they might not know what low FODMAP means. Yeah. So low FODMAPs, uh, FODMAP is a, basically an acronym that stands for several different types of fermentable carbohydrates that can cause gas and bloating in people that have uh, dysbiosis or disruptions in their gut microbiome. And removing these is a common recommendation. I feel like even a lot of conventional doctors are recommending a low FODMAP diet yeah. to some of their IBS patients. Oh, 100%. It yeah. Symptoms in mm-hmm. the near term. Um, but, you know, over time, when we t- keep taking that fiber and those fermentable carbs out of the diet, I feel like we're, we're putting our gut microbiome diversity at risk over yeah. the long term by doing that. And it's a low fiber as, diet. Yeah. Using it mm-hmm. as symptom management and then sacrificing diversity maybe in the long term and the ability to eventually tolerate some of those foods that we should be eating. Yeah. It's a really double-edged sword. There's great data on low FODMAPs being helpful for IBS and Crohn's and colitis. So it yeah. does make sense, but we have to kind of get to the next step of what is the underlying problem and how do we reintroduce the right kind of fiber and maybe cultivate the right kind of species to tolerate the fiber. Um, And I have a lot of theories about part of the reason low FODMAPs works, maybe not so much that you're taking out fiber, but you're taking out all processed foods and what role that is playing in removal of the diet. Um, I think all restrictive dietings, that's, that's a component of them because when you are unable to go buy any food outside of your house that you cook from scratch, you will be exposed to less preservatives and antimicrobial material in food and trans and fat antibiotics and trans fat and all these things that mess up that <laughs> microbiome. Um, but I, I like, I get the frustration because I have patients that were so miserable, low FODMAP saved their life, made them functional again. And then here I am up on stage telling them they have to eat fiber. And they're like, what are you doing to me? I'm pulling my hair out. Yeah. And so again, that's where I think looking at the mechanism of what's going on here and slowly and methodically reintroducing fiber or prebiotics that don't cause all that gas and bloating right away. Um, might be the direction. I just thought of an analogy. So it's kind of like growing. Like Haley little, loves her analogies. I love my analogies, <laughs> you guys. 
but it's kind of like growing a little infant, right? So you think that you're, that the infant's getting like hardly any breast milk at all. Like you're like, oh my gosh, how are they even growing? But they just get like a couple ounces each day. And, but over time, like slowly, 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 they're drinking like, you know, 12 to 19 ounces a day. And that's kind of like what you need to do with fiber is just give it like a little, little one, you know, and then just slowly and gradually over time continue to increase. Um, and that's, that's a really good point because honestly, I've worked with patients where I'm like, okay, start taking like two teaspoons a day of this psyllium husk. And you know, they come back to me and they're like, that was awful. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh crap. So, and yeah, and I think it just, it does depend on the type of fiber. And so I am excited too. I'm learning a lot about the type of fibers, fibers that are coming out like hydrolyzed guar gum yeah. is one, um, yeah. And so what, tell us a little bit about like, are there any like favorite brands that, uh, <laughs> that you like or, I mean, I have like had lofty goals of making my own. Um, I look for a combination of, I look for a combination of low, but a little bit of inulin or like very small portion carminatives, which are like ginger and fennel for digestion. And then a mix of other things like polyphenols. I, another lecture I saw at this conference was by a company called Biome Bliss and they do a blueberry uh, version of a prebiotic that's wonderful and lovely. Um, mm -hmm. And it's like third press of the pumice of the leftover parts of the blueberry plus some inulin. It was developed by somebody thinking about the microbiome. Um, but you know, all the herbal like brands you would find on Emerson or natural partners, I think are, are reasonable. I would just look at the ingredients and make sure you're not going to get slammed with, uh, too much inulin at the beginning. Um, the other thing I use all the time is the metagenics like GI replenish powder because it has some glutamine and some breast milk oligos and some fiber and prebiotics in it. And it's a nice blend of all things that are gut healing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but I'm remiss to give you advice on that without being like, but if you're in a stressed out space and you're not, your vagus nerve isn't turned on and you're not addressing the mental health gut brain access and you're in fight or flight mode, it doesn't matter because your gut's not going to work if you're not in calm, rest, digest mode. And I think that's the other part that patients have trouble with is, mm -hmm. well, some days I can eat this thing and other days it makes me miserable. And it's like, well, are those the days you're waking up at 6am for a meeting or whatever stressor you have, you know, nothing you eat is going to be tolerated. And so I don't know man, what you're talking about, Andrea. Mom, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. For moms <laughs> and preconception, you're talking about stress management as the foundation of gut health. It's so hard. There's so yeah, really hard variables. I think it's yeah. really honestly the biggest barrier to like, I, my gut is like 80% better than it used to be, but I feel like that last 20% really is the stress piece. Like that's yeah. the hump that I'm having trouble getting over. And I actually think that this is kind of a good segue to talking about some of the other factors that are influencing microbiome health besides diet, besides, you know, manner of birth and breastfeeding. So obviously stress is a really big piece, but what are some of the other things that we can do ourselves preconception, but other things we also need to be thinking about for our kids in that thousand day development window 
to help them have a healthier microbiome and set them up for a healthier life. Well, it's multifactorial, right? So you have to think about things that are going to kill bacteria. You want to avoid those things. You want to give them the food via breast milk or whatever that's going to feed the good bacteria. And you have to think of the whole ecosystem. So our skin surface is an absorption organ. Our skin is an extension of our gut. So, you know, the things we're putting on baby's skin affect their microbiome through a, you know, chain reaction. So no oils. Well, it depends what kind, right? Like I I think about skin health a lot in the context of the gut microbiome because our skin is an extension of our gut. And if we're absorbing toxins and antimicrobial things on the skin, that impacts the whole ecosystem and orally and, you know, all of the I consider the human body a donut and the donut is like mouth to anus and the skin is all the surface of the donut and it's all covered in bacteria and it's all connected. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it's hard. It's environmental medicine is hard. It's like, what is the best bang for your buck? What is mm-hmm. the biggest risk factor? You can't stress out about it too much because as a new mom, your job is just a function. <laughs> yeah. But however, you I know, think the old hippies important. had it right. I think that's, yeah, I think it's important right. to make that connection. You know, as a mother, I think it's important to make that connection that if, if there's something up with your baby's skin, that just like you were saying, it's a donut and what's going on on their skin is likely originating from their gut. And so instead of going and slathering on steroids and slathering on all the, you know, I, I, right. I totally understand that you need to do something in the moment to relieve their pain because I totally get that. And, but in pursuit of finding out what the root cause is, which is usually the gut. And so we mentioned like the Evivo, um, B Infantis probiotics can be super helpful. You can get colostrum. I mean, there's a lot of things that you can do. And obviously that's a whole nother thing and we're not doing pediatrics here, but, um, but just, you know, it's only suppressing the symptoms and then it's going to manifest somewhere else. Like it's going to manifest as asthma or it's going to manifest as allergies. It's going to, you know, if you don't get to that root cause. And there's low hanging fruit that we take for granted. I think I take for granted all the time that we know things that the average person doesn't know, but like mom drinking an herbal fennel tea is going to help babies gas. Right. Yeah. And like, that is an easy low hanging fruit to address. Mother's milk is a really popular one, the tea and it has fennel in it. Yeah. So like what mom is doing can both you know, go both ways, but it's important for mom not to stress too much. Cause again, the stress is going to get you first. Yeah. But what you're eating, like if you take, you know, you take out the allergen, um, that can go a long way. I think about environmental medicine a lot with moms and babies is like, just do your best not to cover them in antimicrobial soap mm-hmm. at a minimum. Don't cover them in hand sanitizer please. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty don't, please. don't microwave plastic and feed it to the baby. Like, yeah, those are, those really are low simple, hanging fruit yeah. that we don't think about, but the plastics are messing with the gut microbiome. Yeah. Um, 
And so, and my other rule of thumb is like, if you're going to eat something, if it sits on the counter and it's not going to mold, it has enough preservatives in it to kill your own good bacteria. So that's a good test. Like if you think about bread or food you're buying or anything, I mean, sugar is a preservative inherently and all sugar is not bad, but you want to be eating foods and at a basic level nutrition that isn't filled with things that are meant to kill bacteria to keep the food safe because that also kills the good bacteria in your gut. True. And, and this is again, where I think it's so great to really put some of this lifestyle stuff in place. Some of this, you know, food, nutrition, and environmental medicine stuff in place so that it's a little bit more second nature when you get to a point where you actually have a baby, like trying to make these changes when you're a new mom, like you said, the stress is going to just destroy you. Um, And so that's why it's so great to be doing this stuff during preconception, because then you have that time before you even get pregnant to get used to a new way of eating and even simple changes. I mean, any change you make, is going to be helpful. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some people need to make a little bit more for their health, like everybody's um, bucket, I guess, of what they can tolerate in terms of environmental exposure or poor nutrition. Everybody's bucket is a different size. Uh, I have a really small bucket, (laughs) so I have to do a little bit more, but not everybody needs to do that. You know, some simple changes to your nutrition, eating a little bit more, you know, fruits and vegetables, organic if possible uh, Mm -hmm. to avoid, you know, pesticide and stuff because that does have an impact on gut bacteria and, you know, switching up some personal care products and not exposing yourself to plastic. I mean, like those three things could be plenty for somebody Um, and doing that stuff before you conceive just, it gets you in the habit of already doing it. And then there's really no question. You don't need to think about oh, is this product okay to put on my baby? Like you already have something safe because you wouldn't use something uh, that was not safe on yourself. So why would you use it on your baby? Like you wouldn't even think about it. Yeah. And I I want the microbiome to be empowering. Fundamentally, I believe knowledge is power and understanding this paradigm and ecosystem can help us make decisions in a way where we feel like we are taking power back to control our prevention and, and health. And so I don't want it to be another list of things you should do. I want it to be a way for you to make an educated decision about how to spend your resources Mm -hmm. and have a bigger picture so that you feel like you are empowered to make those decisions and nobody's perfect and we're going to eat antibiotics and we, and, and, you know, we're going to eat food that has preservatives in it. We're going to drink all kinds of water that's not you know, perfectly filtered and air that we can't control and we have stress. So yeah, not to be overwhelmed, but to feel like this is another set of information to help you prioritize in a way that makes you feel like you're back in control and not just being given a list by a doctor that doesn't make any sense to you. Yeah. And being your own advocate in the doctor's office where if they want to give you an antibiotic, you have now the knowledge and power and motivation to say, you know, I'm going to try something, something else and, and maybe something, some alternative to be able to protect yourself from that. Or, and if you need an antibiotic, you take the antibiotic, but you understand the risk. Yeah, absolutely. You know that there might be, you know, something that needs to happen after that. Like, I think it's really interesting that, um, there's, I don't know how advanced or far along this research is, but about the idea of just taking like an over-the-counter probiotic doesn't necessarily help with microbiome recovery. It can actually even delay it. 
I read an article about that study uh, that it's complicated, but yeah. um, there, there are, it gave me pause. There's, that's not, it wasn't a great study for some reasons and it was a really good study for other reasons. Um, we know that the microbiome gets perturbed when you take an antibiotic, it gets messed up. Um, and everybody's different in how fast it bounces back mm-hmm. and how you bounce back maybe if you're otherwise healthy is just prebiotics and not a probiotic. But if you are having diarrhea, maybe you do need a probiotic. And there's lots of evidence that shows probiotics during antibiotics reduce the the diarrhea. So I Mm -hmm. think it, again, it's a just really complicated ecosystem and we don't know everything. everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I think it's interesting because I think the the knee jerk reaction for everybody is like, oh, just take a probiotic and you're fine. And it's like, well, you know, it's it more complicated. Little, it might be a little more complicated than that, um, which Definitely. I think is really interesting. So let's actually talk about uh, let's transition to talking about FMT, fecal microbiota yes. transplant, uh, because we you mentioned that at the beginning of the episode is something that you're doing. Um, you have a lab in your practice at Flora Medicine, which is really super cool. We've seen it. Um, so tell us what FMT actually is, what it's currently being used for, and what we think the future of this type of treatment could be. Yeah, it's really cool. <laughs> um, and is is kind of like a super probiotic. So if you think of the fact that we don't know what strains or what's going on in this ecosystem exactly are, and it's hard to pin that down, What we do is we take the whole ecosystem, which is represented in a healthy stool, and we concentrate it down to a little microbial pellet and give it orally to people to replace or encourage growth, or we don't really know what the mechanism is, Um, but it, it helps people's microbiomes, and we can show that with data and sequencing and stuff. And so it's not a new technique. It's been used in veterinary medicine for a long time. It was used Mm in fourth century Chinese literature for diarrheal disease. It just was something we moved away from with the hygiene germ theory when we realized that fecal oral is a way we transmit infectious diseases. We got rid of all the fecal material that we used to be less concerned about. So um, what it does is it cures a specific antibiotic resistant diarrheal disease called Clostridius difficile. And that's a opportunistic infection that people get when they take antibiotics in the hospital. And it's a really big problem. And fecal transplant in the form that we do is between 80 and hundred percent effective, depending on dosing. So it's very effective. Um, but it, and it's being used in hundreds of clinical trials for everything from autism to obesity to depression and anxiety um, and cancer therapy and all kinds of cool stuff. But it's it's regulated because we don't really know exactly what the risks are. There's an infectious disease risk, obviously. And um, it's sort of in a limbo. So we can, as clinicians, treat people who have antibiotic resistance C. diff, and that's what we do at Flora Medicine. And then... Um, talk about it. And I consider myself somebody who communicates and translates microbiome information as a way to help um, with health and wellness and naturopathic medicine. So learning about what we're seeing in fecal transplant clinical trials is really interesting because like in the instance of the autism study, um, 
that used fecal transplant therapy over a prolonged period of time, um, they saw improvements in GI symptoms and um, neurologic symptoms associated with autism spectrum disorder. So fascinating, right? Why would a totally. transplant improve? It makes sense that it would improve the GI symptoms, but why would it improve some of the neurologic manifestations? Um, which is, is really interesting. So that's what we are working on and thinking about and researching and thinking really hard about the mechanism that underlies it and how we can maybe get a, approach this from a way that doesn't have infectious disease risk and still provide this therapy is what we're working on right now. Yeah, that's amazing. I can't wait to see um, what the future of this potential treatment could be for a much wider variety of issues than just antibiotic resistant C. diff. Um, So I'm going to throw something out there because I learned about it recently. There's like a couple new studies and this is interesting for you guys. So they have started to do vaginal microbiome transplants. Whoa. Yeah. And so I do fecal transplant, but um, Dr. Molly Ellis, who I work with, who's a women's health um, practitioner and does a lot of BV and pelvic pain and mm-hmm. even fertility stuff. Um, you know, we're starting to learn the vaginal microbiome plays a role in all of that. And so they have just started to do vaginal microbiome transplants where they take the vaginal microbiome of a healthy person and they put it into the person who has something going on like BV, which is a chronic vaginal infection. Um, uh-huh and are seeing similar cool things. It's in the very infancy of its use, but I like have to throw it out there because of the context of this podcast. That's really interesting because our last episode uh, that our listeners heard previous week, we mentioned that I had a patient case where we treated the vaginal microbiome and um, she became pregnant the next month. So it it is something that we've talked about too, as far as like the microbiome inside the uterus um, and how you know, they're treating the uterus with like antibiotics and it's increasing mm-hmm. the, the chance of pregnancy for women who have been, um, considered, you know, infertile. So it's, yeah, I, I don't think that very many people at all think about the, the, uh, the microbiome inside the uterus or, you know, bladder or vagina or any, any or fallopian so, tubes. It turns out that entire what? system has bacteria. <laughs> Well, since okay. see, that has well, really if it's in the uterus, I guess it's in the fallopian tubes, but that has really interesting implications for a whole set of things. But you know, it makes you wonder about things like somebody asked us. We we did a a webinar recently, and somebody asked us like, how could we reduce our risk of ectopic pregnancy? Now, I know of no research that has anything to do with ectopic pregnancy and you know fallopian tube microbiome, but it it makes you wonder like what's happening in that environment that would make somebody prone to having that experience as opposed to that fertilized embryo being able to move normally through that environment. So and I, there's so more bacteria than sperm. There's more bacteria than sperm in semen. So like what is that microbiome playing in this picture too? I mean it it really we forget about the role that the men's microbiome mm-hmm. or people with you know people with the uh, male genitalia what their role is in this. Nobody is talking about that. 
Like it, I, we should I don't think be looking. Ever mentioned that before that there's like well, microbiome and semen. <laughs> you should interview Molly Ellis for your next podcast because we had a conversation about okay. it at breakfast, and she can get into the details. All right, sounds like such a great theory. conversation for breakfast. <laughs> yeah, she's on our list. <laughs> That's Sorry, open a can of worms at the last five minutes. I know. Well, it's good. It's like a cliffhanger, so people will be excited to listen to the next one. Well, well and it gives us like future ideas of things that we can talk about and explore yeah. more and research more as it comes out. Thank yeah. you so much, <laughs> Andrea, my pleasure for, for being on the podcast. I really hope. I mean, my mind is blown. I mean, people are obviously are listening to me going what. So I hope that they are just as excited about this new research coming out and um, excited to uh, explore more of their gut health with prebiotics and different types of probiotics and things like that before conception. And especially if they're having trouble conceiving, looking at that as a potential avenue for improving their overall health. Yeah. Whole health. Be empowered. Knowledge is power. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much. Have a good day.